And we're finishing up our little series um, for our October annual membership renewal. Um, and our series is Beyond Toxic um, ev- Evangelicalism, <laughs> Beyond ta- Toxic Religion. Emily's done like two really good um, sermons in this. I encourage you to catch those from the last two Sundays. She uh, was speaking in Los Angeles with some new friends who are planting fully inclusive affirming churches all over the world, including places that are that are very hostile to LGBTQ people. So I guess she, uh, she rocked the house and did really well. And I've got kind of a juicy story that if you come to the vision meeting, I will tell you. It might be a little gossipy, but it happened at the thing and it might be interesting to you. But so anyway, um, so I have a title to, the, to this um, sermon today. It's How Fundagelicalism Turned Scripture into Something It Was Never Meant to Be, How to Get It Back, and manage some of the emotional fallout along the way. So i got three main points here. The first thing, I'm going to tell some American religious history that has had, I think, an outsized impact on culture and actually things that affect all of us. And then I'm going to offer four Jewish perspectives on this Jewish book we call the Bible um, to reclaim it as a means of grace. And I'm going to close with two perspectives for managing some of the emotional fallout of this process that affects different ones of us in very different ways. But it's very much part of the, you'd say, American experience. So the religious history part first. Now, as I start with this, you might think that you're getting stuck at a party with computer geeks talking like, I don't know, Fortran and, and JavaScript. Is that even a thing? And you're looking for a way to say, I'm sorry, where's the restroom, you know, to get out of this <laughs> conversation. But this little bit of nerdy uh, religious history is actually um, super important in um, global affairs. It's, it's behind our inability to deal with the climate crisis. It's part of resistant and resurgent white supremacy. Um, it's the reason LGBTQ uh, and women's equality is such an uphill um, two steps forward, one step, three steps back. And it's also the reason that many of us, many of you, have tension with the religious members of your family at Thanksgiving dinner. And all of this is tied to a set of 90 essays that were published between 1909 and 1915 that had the name The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth. Prop number one is this collection of essays called The Fundamentals. The Fundamentals is what fundamentalism is named after. fundamentalism, these 90 essays, were a reaction to mainly to advances in science of the 19th century, especially uh, The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, um, and also the application of what at that time were more modern methods of historical and textual study that were applied uh, to scripture, mainly coming out of Germany, which was like the sort of the center of white Christianity in, uh, in Europe. The defining cultural event of fundamentalism was the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925. 
Uh, Clarence Darrow, if you saw the movie, was defending the biology teacher, who, a biology teacher who, who was using a textbook that taught evolution. The name of that textbook was Civic Biology by George Hunter. And uh, Clarence Darrow was paired against William Jennings Bryan, um, representing the state of Tennessee, which had a law against teaching evolution. Except it was super complicated because civic biology was a monstrously racist textbook that ranked humanity in five categories of evolutionary development, whites at the top, blacks on the bottom. It denounced intermarriage. It advocated eugenic cleansing, as a matter of fact. So this was very much part of the early 20th century um, science textbook in, in our country. Um, and so that was a part of the story that many people don't know. It's all like, oh, well, it was all just anti-science, but actually Williams, Jennings, Bryan had very good reasons to object to that textbook, although he objected on, on other, perhaps, the wrong grounds. Um, I just want to read briefly from, and, and I'm almost done with the nerdy part, um, maybe two-thirds done. Um, <laughs> read from... Um, a scholar named uh, David Bentley Hart, The Story of Christianity, about fundamentalism. He talks about the, um, what the fundamentals were, virgin birth, atonement, the resurrection, these sorts of things. The last one was scriptural inerrancy. Of these, scriptural inerrancy was the only wholly novel principle in the fundamentals. It went far beyond the traditional Christian belief in the divine inspiration and truthfulness in Scripture. Actually, our reading today from the lectionary for today was that from 2 Timothy. It meant that every single event reported in the Bible was historically factual, every word recorded therein literally true, and every apparent contradiction unreal. Such a view of Scripture might have been tacitly held by many Christians down the centuries, a kind of a naive view that would have fit the time, but as an explicit dogma, it was contrary to all of Christian tradition, Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox. So in, in the doctrine of inerrancy was a novelty at the time, is what he's saying. So if you have an understanding of this, this spectrum in the Christian landscape, you would say 1910 or 9 was the beginning of what is now called fundamentalism. And then there was a break. Some fundamentalists broke from fundamentalism and started what we now call evangelicalism. That was in 1948. But they really are on a continuum, and it's essentially one thing. I would call it fundagelicalism. Um, because the one thing that is held in common is this doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. So any evangelical organization, includes, including ones that would consider themselves progressive compared to the fundamentalists, would insist on the inerrancy of Scripture as it was described by that scholar David Bentley Hart. Every evangelical organization insists on that. And, and it's even more significant because evangelicalism as a movement, it's a very amorphous, diverse movement, has had a huge impact on virtually every major sector of the Christian landscape. It's actually had a big impact on Catholicism and on what would be considered liberal 
mainline Protestantism. So it's a, it's a hugely um, um, influential movement, and the heart of it is this doctrine of, this novel doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. And part of this whole scene culturally is that the, the metaphors used to defend the inerrancy of Scripture are all warfare metaphors. So you would go to conferences called the Bible Wars or the Battle for the Bible or Defending the Bible. And this warfare framing, are, the metaphors we use have huge impact on conversations. The warfare framing leads to a series of like warfare postures about this debate. Like when you're in a time of war, you're literally fighting for your life. You're fighting for survival. Uh, in, in a time of war, people have like not a nuanced view of anything. It, you have an absolute posture about the rightness of your side. Um, it's a time of great like cultural certainty. I mean, you're in a fight for your life. Ambiguity makes you nervous. Uh, there are no contradictions that need to be dealt with, certainty, and it also breeds a kind of a loyalty betrayal culture. Like you have to be loyal to your side, and if you depart in any way from loyalty to your side, it's viewed as betrayal, not just like a different point of view. So this is really the, the foundation of so much of the tension and the anxiety in our society. It comes from this movement that we call fundamentalism, that spawned evangelicalism, and that was noted by the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. So I, I just wanted to review like four postures toward, um, toward Scripture that I think help get us out of this anxious system that was created. And they're kind of simple perspectives. Uh, they're also Jewish perspectives, by and large. And we sometimes forget that what we call the Bible is like a Jewish book. Um, it's possible that the Gospel of Luke was written by a non-Jew, a Gentile, but virtually everything else in what we call the Bible is written by Jewish authors. And the first perspective is that Scripture speaks with many voices. Actually, the way our Bibles come to us confuse us. Like, this is the ordinary way you think of having a Bible. It's like super thin. They're like onion-thin skin pages of sticky silk. There's unique pages. They're so thin, so you can get it all in here. And also, it's like double columns, and it's small font, so you can get everything in one book. But the Bible is actually a library, not a book. It's a library of books. Here's, a, here's an example of that uh, that someone gave me recently. It's heavy. Bibliotheca, it's called. And you've got the five books of, the, of Moses. You've got the later prophets. You've got the former prophets. You've got the writings. You've got the New Testament. And right in here, you've got the Apocrypha. So there's a bunch of writings that are accepted by some Christians, but not 
others. So what is actually in the library is somewhat in dispute. And so this is like a more, um, more accurate view of what the Bible is. It's a library of, of different books, and it's heavy. Um, let's take first the fundamentals off the altar, and, and maybe we should take the Bible off the altar. I, I don't want to just drop it. Someone could hold, uh, would anyone, yeah, Jill, you can hold it. It's okay to cradle it, treat it nicely, <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, so, um, oh, this too, Wally. This is for you to, yeah. Okay, enough of that. So, first, Scripture speaks with many voices. The inerrancy doctrine of Scripture says there's no contradictions in Scripture. Scripture speaks clearly with a single voice. The term for this is univocal. The view of the Bible in the doctrine of inerrancy is that it's univocal, speaks with one voice. The Jewish people have always understood that Scripture speaks with many voices, and these voices are sometimes in conflict and that is what makes Scripture useful for wrestling with divine, uh, divine uh, mysteries. The conflicts in the Bible are not a scandal to the Jewish people. They're like the occasion for debate and discussion and argument. This view of Scripture is called multivocal. For example, there are two contradictory proverbs in the Bible. One says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. The second pro uh, proverb is, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Kind of like what, what the Democratic candidates are trying to figure out right now. Those, which, which one do we use in our, in our debates? Now, those two proverbs in the Bible are right next to each other. So the one is Proverbs 26.4, and the other is Proverbs 26.5. So the contradictory, two contradictory Proverbs are placed by the author of, or the redactor of Proverbs, and they're put right next to each other because the Jewish people are comfortable with contradiction, the multivocality of Scripture. Different books in the Bible have conflicting perspectives. The book of Job, we'll probably study that for Lent, is a critique of the wisdom of Proverbs and to a lesser extent the wisdom of the book of Deuteronomy. The letter of James is a critique of the writings of Paul. So scripture is multivocal and its meaning is not always clear. And the Bible asserts this. So Second Peter in the New Testament refers to Paul's writings as difficult to understand. <laughs> so you have Peter saying Paul's writings are difficult to understand. So the, the scripture is multivocal. It's unafraid of, of uh, difference and contradiction. And that's all part of the process. I have a Jewish friend who said, uh, to the Jewish person, argument deepens fr friendship. To the non-Jewish person, argument threatens friendship. And so there's a, that's a fundamentally different posture to the whole, to the whole deal. So everyone can relax. Second perspective is uh, it's super helpful to adopt 
what is really the cardinal rule of the early and the, and the still Jewish Jesus movement. So Jesus himself had, had essentially one rule for interpreting scripture. It, it seems like it was the only clear rule Jesus had for inter interpreting scripture, which at the time would have been called the Law and the Prophets. And that's the familiar, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Law and the Prophets. That's like his rule for interpreting scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Bible. And so if, you, if your interpretation of scripture is impeding you from loving your neighbor, it's the wrong interpretation of scripture. Um, this rule is offered along with several case studies that Jesus points out where people were interpreting scripture in a way that was impeding their ability to love their neighbor. And he was contesting his fellow rabbis on, on this uh, very point using this principle. Luke in the book of Acts, who wrote the book of Acts, features the story of Saul, who really weaponized an interpretation of Torah to harass some Jewish uh, Jesus followers. And he tells the story of, of Saul's change of heart on this three times in the book of Acts because it's so important. How important is this? Well, in one of his letters, Paul refers to himself as the worst of sinners. Now, if you read the other writings of Paul, you understand that Paul didn't have anything like a modern, conflicted, introspective, guilty conscience like so many Western people do. He, didn't, he defended his honor over and over in his writings. He claimed his innocence over and over, but he called himself one time the worst of sinners, and it was in the context of doing this of taking his faulty reading of Torah and, and weaponizing it against his fellow Jewish people. And, and this is the greatest regret of his life, harming others based on his interpretation of the Bible. So Paul echoes Jesus' um, you know, primary rule, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. It's sprinkled throughout his writings. He even has his own version which goes, love does no harm to the neighbor, in case you are wondering. Love does no harm to the neighbor. So I have a, I have a story, something that happened this week that illustrates it. And it's from the um, most influential early mentor I had as a brand new Jesus freak in 1971. His name was uh, Dick Bieber. And uh, it's hard to underestimate his impact. He was like my first um, male hero. He was like my measure of what a pastor is supposed to be. He, he played a super influential role in what I felt like was like literally saving my father's life. So my father took an overdose of barbiturates when he was in his 40s. I was like 20, a brand new Jesus follower. He suffered from a PTSD that was undiagnosed from his uh, combat in World War II. And he's in, he's, in, um, he's in Mount Sinai Hospital in Northwest Detroit. He's in a deep coma. His, um, his body is shutting down. His kidneys are shutting down. He's having to get um, hemodialysis. He's ingested a barbiturate that's fat-soluble, so it stays in his system. And, 
And Dick Bieber had just been introduced to my dad a few months earlier, and they'd kind of had some conversations. He came to visit um, my dad in the ICU, and me and my uh, friend uh, Mark Kinzer, we were brand new Jesus people, and we were in the chapel praying, and Dick is up in the ICU, and he's talking to my dad in, in, uh, in the coma, and he says, uh, Glenn, you're loved. Wake up. And, and it's okay. You're going to be okay. He's just speaking loving, assuring words to him. The, the nurse at the time, as Dick is about to leave, says, Oh, um, Pastor, um, he can't hear you. And that's when my dad decided to say, Thanks for coming, Dick. And he, he like, woke up. And, and he, was, he was fine. So do you understand what I'm saying when I'm saying Dick Bieber was a really important figure in my life. So when I wrote a letter to my congregation, we had that whole ordeal, you can, we don't need to go over it, but um, this was, you know, five, six years ago. I called Dick on the phone and I talked to him. He's quite a bit older at this time, he's living in Canada. And I could tell from the conversation that while he was personally supportive of me, he was on a different side on this issue. I sent him a copy of the book, and I, I can't remember hearing back from him. And I, I decided not to call him. I really didn't decide. I just didn't call him for quite a while because I don't think I could handle the, like, oh, he, you know, he might think I'm wrong. And I had, I had my fill of that. So I'm, I'm driving to the um, staff meeting on Wednesday, and, for some, and I have my therapy on Wednesday. And so I think about, what do I want to, you know, I'm spending this money on the therapy. I need, I need to focus what I'm going to talk about. And I was thinking about Dick Bieber, because my therapist tells me, you know, people idealize pastors, and then pastors internalize that, and then they feel like they have to live up to an impossible ideal, and it's a kind of pressure, and it's a thing that happens with pastors. I'm thinking, oh, I must have idealized, like, off the charts Dick Bieber when I was 19, 20 years old, and, I, and, and wow, I wonder what impact that had on my psyche as, as being a pastor myself, and, and then I'm thinking, well, but I, I did kind of differentiate from Dick on the LGBTQ issue, and so I'm just thinking about this, and I'm thinking about bringing it to my therapy, and I get to the staff meeting, and I pull out my phone, and I look at my emails, and there's an email from Dick Bieber. And I haven't heard from him, like, in years. And it's Dear Ken. And he goes on to tell the story of how he had met many years ago with a young gay congregant who had written like a treatise on how it's okay to be gay and to be a Jesus follower, and how he had at the time, um, what was his phrase? He said he... Um, with kindness and firmness, he told her that he, she couldn't be gay and be a Jesus follower. And he was, his conscience after this was bothered. He said, of course, I drove her, I drove her away. And then he says, my conscience was bothered. And some years later, I wrote her an email and I said, you know Jesus, if you prayed and Jesus is fine with you, who am I to give you a hard time about this? And, and he apologized to her. 
This had a high impact on me. When, when, I, when I read it, it was like the 19-year-old me was like, oh my gosh. And, and Dick Bieber made that move based on this principle of if your interpretation of Scripture impedes your love for another person, it's the wrong interpretation of Scripture. I could tell from the email he hadn't worked out all the issues, but he got there the way he could get, get there using this very principle. Um, I was very thankful for that email this week. So that's the second thing. The third posture that is a Jewish posture is to keep the core insight of Scripture in focus. You know, like the forest and the trees. What's the forest of Scripture? Well, the forest is the God of Israel, who is the God of Jesus, is the God of the victim, is the God of the oppressed. So in 1971, I read, um, as I'm coming to faith, I read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, um, Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of a very few German pastors during the ascendancy of Adolf Hitler from wannabe strongman to aspiring autocrat whipping up crowds at his rallies to dictator who did the things he talked about. He was one of the few people who resisted Hitler from the early days when Hitler was rising up. And it turns out that Bonhoeffer was also probably gay. We, uh, recent research came out along those lines. It was Bonhoeffer's Jesus who first appealed to me. Um, it was not the Jesus of evangelicalism, which I didn't even have contact with at the time, but later I was absorbed into it. Then came the ordeal that launched our church. And then in the height of that ordeal, I pick up a little book by Howard Thurman called Jesus and the Disinherited. Dr. Martin Luther King kept this little book in his breast pocket whenever he traveled because Howard Thurman was a huge influence on Martin Luther King. Jesus and the Disinherited. And, and Thurman just makes a simple, obvious claim that Scripture is written by the disinherited, for the disinherited, and it's inspired by the Spirit who defends the disinherited and something about that just hit me and it dawned on me that in the intervening years how many of the writers who shaped my understanding were white men who never suffered any discrimination themselves and never paid a social cost for anyone who did. I'm like, what? What was I reading all those years? I mean, I literally went to my books and I started taking books out. I started to recycle them. Sometimes I would use a phrase that you might text with initials. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of all these books and I'm, and I'm going to Amazon and I'm buying other books and I'm reading. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the, you know, the Beatles. Most famous, you know, Beatles, 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 Beatles everywhere. You can't, Beatles. Uh, I, I went to a Paul McCartney concert at Little Caesars recently. All white crowd in the middle of Detroit. You know, there's a difference between the Beatles who were influenced 
by rhythm and blues, which was influenced by gospel, which was influenced by Afro-Cuban rhythms. And, and there's a difference between the Beatles and the original music of like the Harlem Hemfats and T-Bone Walker. And, you know, something was definitely lost in transition, you know, translation from rhythm and blues to the Beatles. And yet it was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones who kind of like made money off of all this music. So it was like, I was just listening to the Beatles when it came to scripture. I was, I was listening to this like three steps removed from what the authors of this book and the, who it was for and what it was from and the God that it represent. I, I still do listen to the Beatles, I confess. <laughs> I'm speaking theologically now though. <laughs> Core insight of the Jewish Bible. The God of the Jewish Bible is the God of the oppressed. If we don't feel that, if we don't respond to it, we're missing the whole point. Fourth posture, last one. Retain the right of conscientious objection when you read these scriptures. See, the, the Jewish people like to argue with each other. Um, you know, like I mentioned, to, to the Jew, argument deepens friendship. To a Gentile, it threatens friendship. And that includes the Jewish understanding of friendship with God. So Abraham argued with God and prevailed, it seems. Jacob was named Israel because he wrestled, he argued with God and prevailed. Some of God's friends in Scripture changed God's mind about things. Job famously argued God and prevailed, or at least he argued to a draw in, in, uh, in the book of Job. In our friendship with God, we have the right of conscientious objection. You know, when we're reading scripture and we see something God does or that the writers of scripture ascribe to God, we're, we're allowed to disagree. Um, you know, I think it's good for us to do that in the way we would disagree with a grandfather parent or a parent or or a spouse which means like you know we say like you know remain open to an alternative perspective but hold your own like hold your own in the relationship god holds god's own in the relationship we can hold our own in the relationship totally jewish totally human totally allowed in our friendship with God. Close with two perspectives to manage the emotional impact of this in our families and people we interact with and all that tension, all that anxiety. Some of us just experience it in the culture of the society. Some of us experience it really close at hand with our family members. The first perspective is for interacting with evangelical family or friends who see things differently, take along some of the core insights of family systems theory. <laughs> I've mentioned this before, rehearse it real quickly. Family systems theory says anxiety flows between people. It's not primarily something that happens inside of us, like independently of other people, but it flows through other people to us. And I noticed that Jesus, whenever Jesus in the gospel says, don't uh, worry, don't be afraid, 
You find that annoying sometimes when Jesus says that and you're reading it like we do individually. Don't worry, don't be afraid. Like easy for you to say, like it's not helpful for a friend to say that to you when you're, when you're worried. Don't worry, don't be afraid. Except that's not the context. Every time Jesus says, don't worry, don't be afraid, he's speaking to a group of people. He's speaking to a collection of people. He's speaking communally to the group to not give in to fear as a group because fear goes through groups to, to each one of us. So like we're herd animals. Like we're a herd of impala and we're roving around human beings and, and, and the, the animals on the outer edge of the herd are especially alert to prey animals, to the lion waiting in the bush. And as soon as that prey animal, prey is animals, the animal that preys upon, right? I, I get that all mixed up. You know, the like going after animal is out there in the bush. The animals on the side notice it and they, they quiver and they get anxious and they get afraid and that spreads like a pulse, like an electric pulse through the whole herd and the whole herd goes away from the danger. We are herd animals like that. Anxiety flows through us really for our survival. And what family systems theory says in dealing with an anxious system, now we're at Thanksgiving dinner with our family, and people are talking about church, and you're like, do I say I go to a church with a gay pastor or not? <laughs> it's one of those moments, or someone says something about what they've been watching on TV, and you say, well, actually, and they put it in a religious framework, and you say, well, actually, with the Bible, you know, all that kind of anxiety. The thing to do in those situations in an anxious system to unplug from the anxiety of the herd is to self-define and if possible stay connected self-define I think the easiest gesture for self-defining when you're like you don't have a, the answer ready handy and and someone says something and you're like oh my am I gonna let that stand the, the simplest thing is the hand to the forehead you put your hand to the forehead you said oh my I see things so differently you say it like it's a wonderful discovery. You're happy about it. Oh my, I see things so differently. You know, maybe when we're relaxed and open to each other's point of view, we could talk about that, which might happen in 40 years, you know, depending on your family system, whatever. That's like the basic thing you can do to self-define. It's like, oh my, I see things so differently. And then as you have opportunities, Again, it's not like you're in a debate and you have to win the argument. That's like evangelical way of thinking, right? You know, our job is to be in debates and, and win the argument. But self-define, and oh, by the way, God in the book of Exodus, how does God reveal God's self to Moses? I am who am. That's a self-defining kind of name for yourself. I am who am. You just do that. I am who am. I think this. Uh, this is my perspective. And you don't have to make it the other person. You just self-define. That's the key to unplugging from an anxious, uh, the anxiety of an anxious system. Self-define, and as you're able, stay connected. After that conversation, send your mom a note and say, you're an awesome mom. I love this, this, and this about you. But leave off the parts that you have self-defined about.
Okay, second um, perspective. And this is for living with what's inside our heads. So we don't have a single voice inside our heads that's called me. We have like a Congress inside our heads. <laughs> right? We have many, many voices inside our heads in different situations, in different settings, in different times of our lives. Certain voices have ascendancy and others are like minority voices and they're forming caucuses together and it feels like sometimes they're meeting out in a back room and then they come in and they ambush us. We have many, many voices inside our, inside our heads. We're at least Trinitarian inside, you know. We got a lot going on. It's good to name your evangelical voice inside your head and renegotiate your relationship with that voice. One of the parts of the negotiation might be, you're not the boss of me anymore. <laughs> but it's still a voice inside your head. Treat it like the uncle the crazy uncle in the family that everyone adores, everyone loves, but this uncle will sometimes say the most outlandish things and these conspiracy theories and cockamamie ideas about this and that, but you like when, when you really need your uncle to be there, he's going to be, be the first one to loan you money and say, that's, that's your uncle. That's your evangelical uncle inside your head and just renegotiate the relationship that's part of growing up we renegotiate our relationship with our parents and with the kids and all the time we're renegotiating relationships renegotiate the relationship with your inside fundagelical um, you're not the boss of me anymore yes but then I've learned a lot from you and you you know all that sort of thing um, I think I'm done. Okay. <laughs> that was, that was self-discipline on my part. We're going to have a reflection right now. And I'm going to, for our time of reflection, we'll take uh, two or three minutes. And here's often what we do in the time of reflection is try to activate our imagination uh, during this time. Imagination's a funny thing. It's, sometimes we can picture things easily. Sometimes they're kind of dim. The most important thing about the imagination when we're doing this is like the feelings that are around it, not like not how sharp and clear the images are. But I'd like us to take a text from Scripture, and it's the same one that Emily used last week. I'm using a slightly different translation from Robert Alter. I found it so helpful. I thought this is worth doing again. It's Psalm 118, verse 5, and it goes like this. From the straits I called to Yah, the shortened form of the full name of God. From the straits I called to Yah. Yah answered me from a wide open place. So, you know, just to prepare you for this meditation, a strait is like, uh, what, the Detroit River is a strait, right? It's between St. Clair, Lake St. Clair and Lake um, Erie. And it's, it, they're typically narrow. Sometimes there's lots of obstacles. Sometimes there's not enough water in the strait to get by. You know, they're, it's, but they're like a, they're a connecting point, and they're a narrowed kind of 
place. So we have emotional straits that we go through, and we have, it's like, it would be like a, walking through the forest, and you get, the path gets more and more narrow, and then you can barely make your way through, and you're tripping over roots, and it's kind of cold and clammy, though it's the middle of the afternoon, and it's dark, and you're in that kind of a, you're in a straits, and then you come into a, a wide open place, and it feels so much better. So let's use that, that image. You can use the, the image as a waterway image. You're in a canoe and a stream, and then you come to a wide open space. Or you could be walking through a forest and come into a wide open space with wildflowers and the sun shining in and a stream of water. You know, you could use traffic, whatever works for you. So let's just, I'm just going to repeat this uh, a few times, but first, just take some time and try to imagine a scene that corresponds to that idea of the straits, followed by a scene that corresponds to the idea of a wide open place. Take a 30 seconds to settle on a couple of scenes like that. And just repeat this three times with time in between. Psalm 118.5 From the straits I called to Yah. Yah answered me from a wide open place. From the straits I called to Yah. Yah answered me in a wide open place. And a third time. From the straits I called to Yah. Yah answered me in a wide open place. Amen.